Spencer, I was stalking you on Instagram. Looks like you were shredding some pow this past weekend. What was going on? Fred, we got such a big snowstorm in Boulder this past weekend. I just I just couldn't get out to ride a bike, so I figured I'd go skiing instead. And boy, I'll tell you what, my knees were paying for that one because it was two big days of skiing. It really takes a toll on the old uh, joints. Yeah, what are you doing to combat the pain? Well, I've been using a lot of the Floyd's of Leadville products lately, and this, this one that I tried out this past weekend is a transdermal isolate CBD cream. And this is, uh, it's sort of just a, a little bit of a balm that you can put on your joints or your muscles or whatever, and it helps ease the pain a little bit. Well, listeners of the podcast may have heard us talking about Floyd's products uh, on past episodes. Floyd's is made from CBD, that's cannabidiol, uh, not the psychoactive ingredient from the cannabis plant, but instead the uh, chemical that has been shown to help with inflammation and pain. And Floyd's wants us to remind you that wherever your activities may take you, Floyd's can be there to ease your pain, get you back in the game. So it sounds like you're back in the game, Spencer. I'm back in the game, Fred, and uh, not a minute too soon either, because in a couple weeks I got to head out to Oklahoma for the Land Run 100 uh, uh, gravel race, first gravel race of the season. So I'm planning on using a lot more Floyd's uh, when it comes to that one. Well, thanks to Floyd's for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Uh, Fred Dreyer here, editor-in-chief of Velo News. I am back in the office after a long, long travel day back from the UAE tour. That's right. I was not in the studio last week. I was uh, in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, two cities of the future, watching the bike race go on. And Spencer, now now I'm back. But i got to tell you, I, I mean, I need some of that CBD stuff. My like, back and neck is so jacked up from being in a, in a, on a flight for 14 hours. Yeah, your body was never intended to sit in a small airplane seat. You're like... About five inches too tall for that, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was in a small seat. I had a middle seat on the way over there. Oh, my God. Uh, I still am not recovered, but uh, that's a whole other story. We have a great uh, show this week. We are going to break down the action of the awesome races that went on this weekend because this was the opening weekend of the classic season. We had Omloop, Hetnisblad, Kuna, Brussels, Kuna. God, I love watching those races. It was rainy. It was cold. It was a good weekend. It's really a, good start. Oh, oh, Spencer. Oh. Oh, I think it's a good race. Very good huh? racing. Yeah, it's Very nice. good racing. Yeah. Uh, then we're going to talk about some of the news coming out of Austria and Germany where we have fun little uh, doping investigation that has ensnared um, cross-country skiers, Nordic skiers, as well as two cyclists. And we're going to talk about what that means for the sport. Finally, we're going we're gonna to talk about the old UAE tour. I was there for the full week. I reported on the racing, reported on the race, talked to dozens and dozens of people about everything from why is this race here to how is it paid for to, yeah, those pesky questions about UAE and its human rights record. Mm. Uh, joining me today, Spencer Paulison. Spencer, you kept the, you kept the fort, you know, safe while I was gone. I appreciate it. Yeah, I was here every day working, Fred. No problem. Yeah. I was, I was keeping you know, charge of everything. I was not stalking you on social media. I didn't leave the office or anything. <laughs> uh, joining us also, Andrew Hood, back from his own ski vacation in Canada. Uh, Hoodie, how does it feel feel to be back are your knees and joints aching from all the fresh powder you had up there in british columbia yeah i could use some of that uh, floyd's potion myself up there in canada you know they call me charlie brown because i seem to have really bad luck wherever i go in the world something bad seems to happen I, when i was in australia for the two dollar record heat man it's like 47 degrees celsius which is about 175 degrees and then Great. uh go to go to canada and uh man record cold it was minus uh how cold was it? It was minus 25 degrees Celsius, uh, which probably, probably about minus 10, which maybe isn't that much. But when you're skiing down the hill, man, it's just instant frostbite. It made uh, made uh, spectacular weather, though. Besides the cold, great views, and the skiing in Canada is absolutely stunning. So, uh, yeah, it's those hot to cold transitions, man, that get you. When I was getting off the flight. Haven't been in the Arabian desert and got off Colorado and it was five below. Yeah, welcome and, uh, home, Fred. <laughs> wife, wife picked me up with a doggy in the car. I was not too happy. I was happy to see them, but I was like, man, I, I could go for being back in Abu Dhabi where they have 80 degree weather and like soaring water parks and, you mm. know, Ferrari world and That'd stuff nice. like that. That'd be nice. Uh, guys, let's get into it. 
Classic season has opened. We have Omloop Het Nusblad this past Saturday, Kurna Brussels, Kurna on Sunday. We had some great racing. Uh, Het Nusblad especially came down to a tactical affair that saw Zdenek Stibar, yeah. the man who, like, we always the want nearly to man. win. Yeah. nearly man, yeah. Finally takes home the victory. Uh, and then the next day, his teammate, uh, Jungle Bob, Wow. Oh. Bob Jungle's continuing to just rip people's faces off with his uh, attacking ability. Uh, but let's start off with Omlupet Newsblad. It was, I think, the more compelling race. And Spencer, take me through what went on in this race from about, I, I'd say, the the Mur de Gerardsbergen on to the finish. Right. So we had a breakaway that was up the road. We had a nice combination of teams in it. You had, of course, Stibar there representing DeSunic Quickstep. You had the Olympic champion, Greg Van Avermet, obviously the man to beat. Uh, Tim Wellens there as well. Lexi Lutsenko, Dylan Toons, who is freaking me out with that Bahrain Merida jersey. I'm not, I'm not prepared to see Dylan Toons in a Bahrain Merida jersey, let alone see a Bahrain Merida jersey off the front of a classic. It's just my, my brain was breaking a little. Uh, it's, I, I have limited capacity there. And then finally, my very favorite, Daniel Oss from yeah. the Bora Hansgrohe team in the mix up there. So these these riders just smashing it into the mirror. Attacks were flying. Greg Van Avermaet, especially an animator in this breakaway. He's so thirsty right now. Why is that? I guess he didn't really get any big results in the classics last spring, so maybe it's time for him to get those wins. Granted, he does have the new colors, that CCC team. That could be why. Anyway, there was a lot of back and forth there. Um, Stibar also really put in a nice dig on the mirror. And then it came down to the Bosberg, the final climb. And I got to say, I was a little, I thought it was kind of, it wasn't very classy of Van Avermaet where he wouldn't pull through on Litsenko going into, into the Bosberg. And it was like, come on, dude, that's like cat three tactics right there. And, and, and sure enough, you get on the Bosberg and he attacks, but they keep him in check and he can't get away. And sure enough, we got this group of riders coming into the finale. By that point, Daniel Osman dropped anyway. Uh, he, he just couldn't hang on that climb on, on the mirror, Os being a bigger rider than these other fellas. And uh, a few tacks went here and there. Tim Wellens did a sneaky little move up uh, the other side of a, of, a, of a traffic divider thing on the highway. I, th- I like that. That's clever. Um, and that really kind of set up the, the move for Stibar where he, con- he counterattacked after Van Avermet shut down that move by Wellens. And Stibar just flew the coop. And <laughs> Van Avermet's like, hey, guys, why don't you uh, pull through and help me chase him back? And it's like, well, why do you think that is, Greg? You were attacking the crap out of everyone all the way up the mirror and all these other climbs. You're being a total jerk to Alexi Lutsenko. Nobody's going to help you, Mr. Olympic champion. So you should have thought of that before you were acting like a crazy person early in the race. Yeah, big win for Stebar. Psyched to see him win. But, uh, you know, look, I'm a, I like Greg Van Avermaet, but I agree. I don't think he raced the smartest race. He was very aggressive in the finale in the last few kilometers, attacking and we saw him on the Bosberg and really making the big move on the mirror, but I, I kind of felt like he was expecting to just be able to drop everyone. And, yeah. And he was not. And, uh, you know, he shuts down the move by Wellens, which gasses his legs. And then actually when Stebar went, he tried to go, he tried to shut down that move too and was just, yeah, he fired off all his bullets and and that was kind of it. Mm. So, you know, whatever. Greg Van Avermaet's won this race a number of times Twice, before. Twice, yeah. So maybe just that was it. He had the pressure of the new kit and being a two-time winner riding on his back. But let's talk about Stibar. Hoodie, you wrote a great piece on the site today about Zdenek Stibar, what this victory means for him, and like it's just sort of his his track record as a classics man. Oh, yeah, Stibar, Zdenek, you know, one of the most popular riders in the bunch, and really one of the nicest guys, too. I mean, a lot of these guys, you get the chance to talk to him, and, and Stibar is always a class act. He'll say hi to you. Uh, you know, to anybody. He's just that kind of person. And, uh, you know, world champion cyclocross came over to the road and really smashed it in his early road races. I remember that guy, he was in that, uh, his first row bay, I think it was back in 2013, when uh, he was on the car four and ran into, it was either a fan or a photographer who just kind of jumped out there to get that shot of a lifetime. And Stebar just smashed into him. He didn't crash. But he lost the wheel, and I think it was Conchalauer going in there with Seb um, Van Mark and Steve Barr probably would have beat those guys had he been able to, you know, what a, what a way to start his classics career. And since then, he's been Mr. Consistency, but he's never quite been able to deliver that big win 
you know, on the cobs. He's won some big races, you know, Strade Bianchi. He's won uh, stages, uh, the Welta, the Tour de France, you know, all around class rider. But this meant a lot to him just because of the team is he, that he's on, the pedigree of being a cyclocross world champion, and the fact I think he's the first Czech rider ever to, ever to win a cobblestone classic. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Stebar over these last few years, I think of the guy who's getting out sprinted. He's like making the front group. He's strong enough to make the front group and tactically smart enough to make the front group at any of these big classic, he cobbled classic races, but he's just, he's the guy who's going to get out sprinted by Greg Van Avermaet and at the end of Roubaix, he's the guy who's going to get out sprinted by like, um, you know, a Cancellara or somebody. So to see him finally break through in one of these things, uh, felt really good. Cause I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many times I've cheered for Zenek Stibar but in the back of my mind, been like, ah, he's not going to win. Well, it's weird, though, too, because he's won a Tour de France stage. He's won a Welta stage. He won the Strada Bianca, I think, uh, uh, like five or so years ago. He He's won big races. It's not like he's never done it at all. So something just wouldn't click in those classics. And I would bet that maybe in part that's due to the fact that in uh, in recent years with Quick Step, he was a little more of a helper, um, you know, supporting a rider like Tom Bonin. That could affect where he's at mentally, as well as how many matches he burns early in a race. Maybe not quite ready to have that finished sprint because he's uh, working for the other guys. Yeah, you know, especially like last year in the, the classics, um, Stebar seemed like he was a bullet that was fired off actually relatively early in some of these races. So, you know, with Terpstra winning Flanders, they knew that he, that Terpstra was on good form. So I just remember in Roubaix, Stebar did put in some digs, but it was like 58, 60 K to go or something like that. You know, he was kind of the, like the mid range missile who, you know, is going to animate the race and get some people dropped, but like not exactly the guy they're thinking of for the win. So hoodie, you know, with Stebar, Winning this race, do you think that changes Quick Step's strategy at all going into, you know, again, Wevelgem, Flanders, and Roubaix? I mean, does he become the man now? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think it's going to change their tactics too much coming into their to their uh, 2019 strategy because, you know, when Bonin retired in 2017, uh, that really set up what we saw last year in Quick Step's uh, Spring Classics campaign, and I think they had, they won several classics with several riders, let's put it that way, with different riders, don't get bogged down in the facts. But that's what worked for Quick Step last year, is they've got two, three, four guys in every race who can win. It's not like the team used to be really built around Bonin. He was the guy that the team was uh, rallying around for all these big races. Now, well, they've lost Terpstra and they lost Gavidia, who was kind of a bust last year. The Classics had an injury, didn't race the Northern Classics. But they've lost those two key riders. But the bench is so deep, they have plenty of riders to step into that void. So I think they're going to go in. They've won already three Classics in a row with three different riders. So Steve Barr will be a guy, but you also have Joubert and all Lampard and all these other guys really right there ready to win. Steve Barr also missing some teeth, uh, f- famously. He knocked his teeth out in a crash. I cannot remember what race it is, but we had... I think it was the Anico Tour or something like that. It was a really gnarly crash. Yeah. And then he, weirdly, coincidentally, he crashed in the same city in a cross race, like, I think the next year or something, and separated his shoulder, did some pretty significant injury. He's got bad luck in this. He shouldn't go there. I, I, I forget the name of it. Stay away, Steve. We yeah. did a photo essay with him a few years back that showed him, like, taking out his teeth yeah. before the race. Ooh. And smiling and, like, legit having, like, an endearing, toothless smile where you're like, okay, guy. He's yeah. like a hockey player. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so quick step. Well, de Kooning, sorry, de Kooning. Yeah. De Kooning uh, kept the success rolling into the next day when uh, Bob Jungles leapt off the front to win Kurna Brussels Kurna. And I guess, you know, this this team again is so deep. They are leading the world tour in victories right now. I, I have to imagine they have more UCI points than all the other teams because of the wins they've had. Uh, so Hoodie, tell me about why is Quickstep able to do this year in, year out? They lose some awesome rider like Terpstra and yet are able to, you know, all of a sudden Bob Jungles is winning cobblestone races. How, how does this happen? Hey, and real quick, Ardui, that's the place. That's where Stebar. Oh, Ardu- that's where he always it's, crashes. It's Arduri. He doesn't want to go go ride there anymore. Oh. Anyway. Don't go back to Ardui. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt, Hoodie. Go on. 
Well, I think one of the reasons why I think Quick Step, a couple of reasons. First off, you know, this is they, they live for these races. This this is their Super Bowl. You know, this is their World Cup. These are the races that motivate these guys. And they've had some success over the years in the stage racing and Grand Tours. Occasionally, you know, hit a podium or you know, do some solid results. But this team, it, the classics are in its blood. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> but he, uh, but this is what this team is. It's the Belgian team. They are stepping up, delivering year in and year out. But right behind the fact that it's part of their legacy is they've had great recruiting. They had the guy, uh, Machine Fernandez, who now is uh, sport director at UAE. He worked for about five years as the talent scout at Quick Step, going back through the last part of this, mid part of this decade. And he really brought in a lot of these young guys that were starting to see already win races last year, like uh, Jacobson, uh, Cavagna, and some of these other young guys that have come in and delivered some of these kind of second tier race wins. And their poor is really to step in and be team leaders in the next few years. And that's why I think this team just has the depth and variety in the one days that un- unrivaled by anybody else in the Peloton. You know, so Jungle Bob wins... Kerna Brussels Kerna, uh, do we think that is a harbinger for him being, you know, being able to have success in the heavy, heavy classics races going forward? I mean, he's a good time trialist. I know he can climb. He's kind of this all-rounder. But do we think that Bob Youngles could be a, a man for Flanders? I saw some quotes from him coming out of that race on Sunday that it sounded like perhaps he'd be interested in considering Flanders. I don't think he'll ever fully try to shift into a, being a true cobbles contender and in part that's due to the fact that he's really good at climbing obviously he's the Liège Baston Liège winner last year I think he's also looking to take a serious run at the Grand Tours I'm fairly sure he's slated to do the Giro d'Italia so I I wouldn't be surprised if he took a stab at Flanders but man on quick step it's sort of a tough tough one to be the be the guy for Flanders because everyone wants to win Flanders being as it's a Belgian team and you have some real favorites there in ter- including f- former former Flanders winner Philippe Gilbert and then why not Janik Stebar uh, I think he's also one for uh, for discussion and uh, and let's not forget the way that the way that Bob Youngles won Kern Brussels Kern was it was really great panache awesome win but he just uh, made the right move at the right time and he's a good time trial rider he used that to his advantage on the mostly flat finishing circuit it wasn't uh, necessarily like true cobbles acumen played into that victory at least in my opinion yeah Bob Youngles is becoming the official rider of like cheeky off the front moves oh, in, the, yeah. in the waning finale of the race. I uh, love it. That wow. stage in Colombia that he won. I mean, you know, the Peloton is thundering into for the finish and you see him at the front and you're like, oh yeah, of course he's going to try and lead Alaphilippe out. And it's like, no, no, oh wow, he's, he's motoring off the front. It's a K to go and no one's bringing him back. God, I wish I had skills like that. Guy is so friggin' strong. Well, maybe if you just rode your bike a little more and stopped flying around the world to... UAE and places like that, maybe maybe you get it going. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, it was a great opening weekend for the classics. I, I thought specifically uh, Omloop Het Newsblad was a lot of fun. I loved it. That was, I mean, this is a great start to the classics. It's yeah. like these are the these are the types of race dynamics that I love. That will they, won't they type thing. You're looking at the the graphic on the screen, and it's like 15 seconds to the leader. 5K to go. This is what it's all about. These races always deliver that type of excitement, but more so than ever this past weekend, I'd say. It's like Classics Groundhog Day. You know, if you have a good, <laughs> if we're gifted a good uh, Het Nusblad, then maybe that's a harbinger for just awesome uh, Flanders, Roubaix, and Ghent Webblegum. Let's cross our fingers for that. I hope so. The other piece of news that has come out in the last week or so was we had uh, some some news around a big doping investigation that happened in Austria at the World Nordic Ski Championships. And police actually busted um, this doping ring at the race and gave us this video of this poor Nordic ski racer, I am blanking on his name at the moment, from Austria, multiple-time Olympian, uh, who is caught on video having a transfusion done. And he just looks bewildered and very confused. And I'm not going to lie, when I saw that video, like, I want us to fight, eradicate doping, but I I really felt bad for the guy. I was just like, oh, man, this is it. This is like what you're going to be known for the rest of your life. Hey, I saw you on the internet. I don't don't feel bad for him. 
Man, I've I've gotten I've gotten my ass kicked in enough Nordic ski races to know that the people who he's been beating all these years, they were probably really really vindicated to see that. Yeah. So, you know, screw that guy. He made the decision to do that, and he gets what he deserves. But anyway, there's some uh, cycling implications here because, uh, as we've seen, this investigation deepened over the weekend. And in the last few days, we've had two Austrian cyclists, uh, Georg Priedler, Priedler? Yeah. Priedler, mm-hmm. and uh, Stefan Denefil, who I remember from that uh, Welta stage win a couple years ago, uh, both come forward and say, they were implicated. Now, Hoodie, you have been reading lots about this, calling around, uh, wrote a great column on the site today. Um, you know, when you think about this investigation, it does kind of bring up memories of Operación Puerto, blood bags, you know, a raid. Um, but it sounds like there's a pretty important difference here between what we saw with Puerto in 2006 and what's going on right here. So, uh, so take us, take us through what's going on with this German Austrian investigation. Yeah, that's right. Fred. The, the big difference between what happened in Spain in 2006 with Puerto and what appears to be happening now between this is kind of a German Austrian investigation, German investigation is that, um, in those countries, there is an anti-doping law on the books, which is a, a key fact because that gives the police kind of these prosecutor powers as well as the uh, the prosecutors involved in this case eventually that allows them to really use the full weight of, of the of the justice system to really go after this and even perhaps get jail terms for these guys and, and really have subpoena power and all these things that go with uh, having these laws on the books, whereas in Spain in 2006, that's why so much of that investigation was kind of stymied is that it got caught in between this, uh, you know, on the sports discipline side. And there was no law at the time in Spain against anti-doping. So they had all this evidence, which really could not be used in the court of law. So that's really kind of got what got Puerto got bogged down and that we never really got the full story about what happened because, you know, they couldn't, could, couldn't put people on the stand. Even there was, there was kind of a civil court hearing in Puerto later, many years down the road, but it wasn't a full-on criminal case. And that's the big difference between what's happening now in Germany is that these guys could face jail time. So the cops could throw these guys in jail, you know, basically say you cooperate now or you're going to stay in jail. And if you don't cooperate, you might be going to jail for a long time. Uh, so that's why we've seen these guys, uh, folded it and Preeder actually turned himself in just because evidently he, he just heard the, the cat was out of the bag and he was up next. So he just turned himself in rather than just uh, sit on the, on the pins and needles. Yeah, and that's the thing with Puerto is that, you know, we did get some of the names. I mean, we get, you know, Valverde and uh, some of these other guys. But there were other names that were always alleged to be involved with it that we just never got because they didn't have – the authorities didn't have the power to release all that, or well, we don't know why. We just they just never all got put out there, and so um, it was this very incomplete investigation. But yeah, you have to wonder if this new thing in Germany will lead to a more complete investigation with more names coming out. Now, it, Hoodie, it sounds like the the doctor at the heart of this investigation has um, a history. With cycling, I believe he was a team doctor with the Milram program about a decade or so ago. What do you What do you know about this guy? Yeah, this is what I've been reading in the in the uh, German media. This guy, um, we won't say who he is because I think a lot of still his allegations. But he's uh, he was actually working with uh, Gerald Steiner as well. And uh, you know, our friend, uh, our friends in Gerald Steiner actually said this was the guy that was helping them blood dope. You know, two thousand eight, all those years ago. And now here he is working with uh, more endurance athletes on the Nordic ski side. Uh, the big question I've got really is, you know, are more cyclists going to get caught up in this? That's the big question I think in the next week or so. If it stops here, I think cycling can say it, it's dodged a bullet because it is right now focused on Nordic skiing. It's not cycling-centric investigation. You know, that's a big difference too, I think, between Puerto as well. Back in those days, it was entire teams – and the leading stars of the Peloton were all working with Fuentes. And right now it's a couple of kind of, you know, middling, you know, middle of the pack guys from Austria who might have been just caught up for whatever reason in this kind of Austrian-based doping ring apparently. Uh, But, you know, what's going to happen if it turns out that a team was involved or other big star riders 
then it has massive implications for cycling. But right now, it seems like that uh, we have only heard these two names have been released. So the other implications I think this has for cycling uh, has to deal with the biological passport. You wrote this in your piece today, the biological passport and the other tools that WADA uses when it, um, you know, tests these guys. Because, you know, under over the last 10 years or so, we've been told that the um, use of the biological passport has created a not completely fail-safe, but a relatively fail-safe tool for um, you know, guarding against doping. All these guys submit blood values multiple times a year over time, and they're able to create a profile for them. And when you see stuff screw around in the, bro- the profile, then you know that something fishy's going on. Red flags are raised. People look into it. People can even be suspended. But, you know, when it comes to Pradler and Denefield, you would assume that these two guys were both involved in the biological passport program because they've both had stints on world tour teams in the past. So you think, okay, these guys are part of the biological passport and it, you know, for, they never tripped up any, they never sent up any red flags. And yet we learn about them through this investigation. And similarly, Nordic skiing, I know is a sport that is heavily regulated. And I know they use the biological passport there too. So then to see all these ski names come out, you have to wonder, well, you know, how how useful is this biological passport? Are there ways to sidestep it? I mean, it sounds like they're you know these doping doctors were actively working on ways to get around the biological passport. Definitely seems like they figured out a way. I mean, if it comes down to a police raid, then yeah, you got to know there's something wrong in the WADA system. It raises a lot of troubling questions, doesn't it, guys? I mean, the passport I think has done a lot, kind of serving as almost like a break on the peloton. That's the that's the buzz we get a lot of time from some of the insiders is saying, okay, look. We know we're never going to completely eradicate doping, but let's put a speed limit and put some guardrails on this thing. So I think over the last 10 years, the, the amount of doping has reduced dramatically. And if you believe what some people say, that uh, people can actually race and win entirely clean. A lot of the top pros will say that, and they'll say it quite stringently and, and strong enough and convincingly enough that you might want to believe them. But then this kind of just raises a lot of uh, questions about is it possible to manipulate the biological passport? Can you microdose? I mean, we've heard these rumors for years now that it's possible to, you know, you do microdosing with EPO, microdosing with blood doping, that can give you that one or two percent. And we all know in a sport like this, one or two percent could be the difference between winning and being in the middle of that finishing bunch. Yeah, I was at at the UAE tour. I had breakfast a few times with the WADA rep who was out there and um, asked him all these different questions. This was before the investigation came out, but he said. He was like, of course, look, riders are always going to dope, and there's there's a certain percentage. Out. And I asked him what he thought the percentage was in the pro peloton, both pro continental and world tour, and he said less than 2% he thought of riders who are doping right now. He had that much confidence in the biological passport system, and he said that, gosh, some of these riders, we just harass them and we test them so much that if they were doing something, it's like they would be sort of you know playing with dynamite because of how often they get tested. So he had a lot of confidence in it, but I guess something like this comes along and you know it does to a certain degree shake some of that confidence but the potential shining light here is that when there are these investigations and the um, drug testers do find out about new methods they disseminate that information pretty well and so I guess you know if something is learned about what these doctors are doing you hope then it gets uh, I don't know it gets passed around and people people the anti-doping you know officials learn what those methods are and find ways to, to test against them. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say for us being in the cycling world exactly how the Nordic skiing testing protocol is. It might be a little more lax than cycling. Um, it might be more stringent. We just don't know. I'm not, at least personally, I'm not familiar enough with it to make a kind of comparison between the two sports. Uh, but the more troubling thing is for this, if more names do come out, and in fact, if we find out that there's uh, teams involved in stuff like this, yeah, I think it's a big trouble side for the for the professional peloton. I think there's been a lot of really uh, pro- a lot of progress made in the right direction with cycling, but uh, you know this is just a reminder that uh, people will do what they can get away with if they believe they can get away with it. They'll get away with it, and, and that's why we need to just complete be vigilant just all the time with this with these doping protocols. Well, we're going to continue to keep our eye on this story as it develops. Right now, it's two cyclists, a bunch of Nordic skiers. But if it grows and widens in cycling, we'll be there to keep 
everyone updated and informed. Guys, we're going to talk about the UAE tour after this quick break. Spencer, we got the new March-April issue of Vela News on newsstands right now. That is the big dirt racing issue that has features about the dirty Kanza and Costa Rican racing and oh, Nika. Nika, high school racing. Yeah, but I think one of the coolest parts of this issue is we have a how-to guide uh, for how amateur racers, participants, um, can participate in some of these dirt races that are really driving the sport forward. Sort of a how-to advice guide because we've all We've all done a lot of these races. Well, I haven't. I haven't done any of them, but you have. So Unbelievable. Uh, one of the races that we have profiled is the Belgian Waffle Ride in Southern California, which is actually coming up. And you wrote the piece on how to race the Belgian Waffle Ride. So come on, give, fork it over some advice. What kind of advice do you have for those uh, aspirational Belgian wafflers out there? Ooh, yeah, the Belgian Waffle Ride was a real hard one. <laughs> I, so this year, the race is in May. Uh, and last year, it was a little earlier in the season, so I wasn't quite as fit, wasn't quite as ready for it. I think I had eyes bigger than my stomach because I was on my hands and knees by the time I reached about mile 90 or so. And this is a 130-mile race, so it's kind of brutal when you get to that point and you realize how much is still left to ride. But the very basic suggestions I would have for people are hydration, very important as it always is, but this is a usually pretty hot and dry and sunny race. It's in Southern California. Hydration is very important. You got to figure out what sort of nutrition and hydration work for you personally. When it comes to just the, the technical side of it, in terms of what kind of gear you want, I would really strongly recommend tubeless tires. A tricky thing with this race is you might not want the full on beefy gravel tire that's like 40 millimeters with a lot of tread. Maybe something a little more like a cyclocross tire, maybe like a file tread cyclocross could be a little better for you because there's a lot of road on this course, but there are these crazy sections of trail. Like you still need a little bit of traction and that sort of thing is not so easy to do on uh, on, on road, road tires. So pace yourself, drink a lot of water, bring the right tool. Uh, that's the Belgian Waffle Ride. Anyway, we have piece of advice for Leadville Trail 100, Grind Duro, Dirty Kanza, Whiskey Off-Road, some of the best dirt races out there. Yeah, Whiskey's coming up soon, too. And I'll be headed out to that one. Looking forward to it. In the March-April issue of Vela News, great photo on the cover of some guy just shredding it on his gravel bike. Uh, pick it up in stores now. Uh, okay, guys, I am back from the UAE tour. Uh, Primo's Roglic smashed it. It was a race in the desert. They went up to the top of the UAE's highest mountain. Uh, it looks like a pretty legit mountain. I didn't really know what to expect. I've never been there. It looked pretty cool, honestly. Yeah, it was. It actually felt like a Colorado climb. It was highway grade that just went on switchbacks back and forth and back and forth to the top of the 6,000-foot mountain. Not a tree on that mountain. Not a single tree was. We were driving up to it. It felt like a scene out of like an Indiana Jones movie. Ooh, fun. Uh, this dense fog, like a sandy fog had moved in. Uh, just rocks everywhere. And we were going up and up and up. And I was like, what the heck is this place? Um, anyway, do you what, what questions do you have for me about this UAE tour? Um, I'm, you know, it was... Uh, the outgrowth of the old Abu Dhabi tour and the Dubai tour, one week race. Remix. And, and it's new. All right, Hoodie, what do you got? Yeah, I've been uh, to a few of these races. For, I'm just curious, were there uh, more camels or fans along the side of the road? <laughs> uh, there, the, I think on the Hatadam stage, it was more camels. We saw more camels than fans. Uh, but actually, you know, the Dubai stage, there were a good number of fans. There were some um, hardy fans who had made their way up to Jebel Hafid to check it out. But, you know, a lot of times we do see these Middle Eastern races and it's these soaring shots and there's nobody on the side of the road. And I actually posed that question to some of the capos who are in charge of this race. You know, hey, look, you know, one of the critiques that we have in the States is you put on this great bike race, but nobody actually comes to see it. And the answer that I was given from um, some of the representatives from both the Emirates themselves and the RCS Giro d'Italia uh, CEO who operates their Dubai offices was that, you know... The Emiratis see these races as a long-term play. They really are trying to grow a culture of cycling in the Emirates. And so they they realize it's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, they go into schools and they talk about cycling and they bring some people out to the races to check it out. But they see the races as like 
this is year five. What's it going to look like at year 50? Maybe by year 50, we're going to have a bunch of fans out there. So I think it's, I'd say it's a concern for them, but it's not like in the USA where, you know, you have a bike race and one year, not very many people show up to it. And the next year it dies because the sponsors are unhappy. The Emiratis take questions about their small fans and they say, yeah, well, you know, the tour is a hundred years old and we're only five. So that's what we're working towards. Are these guys in charge of the race? Do they actually ride? Are they are they cyclists? What why is, why are they putting on a race? What, what what appeals to them about it? No, so the race is um, owned by um, the Emirates of Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Sharjah, which is the third. Um, third of seven, the third most populous um, emirate. There's seven emirates, and these three have you know came together to fund this race. It's like Beyonce's sister. You don't hear about her very. Don't much. hear much too, too much about Sharza. And you know they all they have their um, sports ministries, and there's the head of the sports ministry, and all you know the heads of all three sports ministries were there. And one gentleman had actually been a um, event organizer. He said he'd put on some like sailing events and some other events, and um, I, I did not ask the other gentleman about um, the gentleman from Abu Dhabi, if he was a cyclist. I asked the one from Sharza, and he's like, no, but I was a professional basketball player. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, you know, in I think in the Emirates. Um, so they, they all had back, backgrounds in sports, but no one had a specific background in cycling. But the reason that they put this race on is for a few different reasons. First is the international advertising that you get in Europe. So, you know, if you put on a big bike race in the Middle East, all of a sudden you're getting, you know, several hours every day of aerial coverage of your, you know replica of Big Ben and you're the tallest building in the world and like some of these crazy museums and stuff just beamed to people in Europe who see this and say, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Um, the second thing they get is they um, are really trying to promote, um, they're trying to give uh, activities for the populace to do. So in the Emirates, it's like 75 to 80% of the entire population are transplants are expats. And so they found that a lot of these expats want, um, you know, they, they want to be able to do, um, endurance sports. So there's a lot of amateur cycling events out there now. And they also want these people to like get involved with pro cycling. The final thing is, is they want to promote health because I didn't realize this, but, uh, the Emirates has one of the highest, um, pers- levels of diabetes type two diabetes. Um, they've have really bad problems with obesity, with um, young people drinking a lot of sugary drinks and inactivity. And so they're trying to use pro cycling and amateur cycling and running and triathlon to try and promote just the concept of healthy lifestyle to the populace. And so, you know, work in progress. So let's get the elephant in the room out of the way here too, Fred. You had mentioned this in the intro. There's some questions about UAE's human rights human rights record, excuse me. It's a, it's a valid question. Should, should we have bike races in countries where, uh, where there's some question about this, the, the, the government and, and whether they're treating their people the right way? Yeah, and look, you know, there have been a lot of pieces written online about, um, you know, very specific instances of human rights abuses done by the UAE. Well, not abuses, but like, you know, people people unjustly jailed, um, people who feel like they've been treated bad by the government. It's not a democracy. Um, It is definitely a monarchy. And it's, you know, it's a a Muslim nation. I'm not going to generalize on that. uh, But there's certain rights that you just don't have. People have told me, ah, yeah, you don't want to like have have public displays of affection too aggressively with your partner. You don't want to flip someone off. But I guess I will say that, and I asked this question to a lot of people that I came in contact with, fans, cyclists, riders, people who worked with the race, people who were grunt laborers, um, our drivers, people who were setting up fences, just anyone you know, I, I met, I'd ask them about this. And people kind of, <laughs> the response that I'd get was somewhere in between like, like asking them if their face was blue, you know, like, hey, what do you think about UAE's like check, you know, whatever experience with human rights abuses? And they'd look at me like, huh, what? Or they'd look at, or like, sir, or, this is an Arby's. Yeah. Or they'd kind of pat, like, get, they'd kind of like pat me on the head and be like, oh, um, because eh, a lot of people are like, dude, this is Europe. You know, this is like, this is when you live here and you're a person where you're, if you're definitely, if you're an expat, but even the Emirati people and the, pe- the people who are from other Middle East nations, they're like, when you live here, you don't have any, 
moment in your daily life, weekly life, monthly life, yearly life that makes this place really feel like you're living in an oppressive regime. I posed that question to this one gentleman who, you know, his English wasn't great, but he is, was, is from Syria and he's a Syrian transplant. And through our communication, he, he basically expressed to me like, uh, I know what it's like to live in an oppressive regime. And this, this one ain't it. Yeah. So you can make make of that with what you will. You know, like I said, there's a lot of stuff documented. Human Rights Watch has published extensive stuff on some of the bad stories that have happened with UAE. But in the conversations that I had with a lot of people, uh, people kind of looked at me like, you know, I asked them if they lived in an igloo. I'm sure some of it just depends on who you ask as well. If those people are out and about working for a race that's promoting the government, they're probably on good terms with. No, (laughs) these these weren't. You know, these were like. I got away from the race and I went and talked to people at other events and like, uh, yeah, it wasn't like, I posed it to the gentleman from, uh, from the Dubai, uh, sports commission and he definitely dropped the fake news on me. Oh, nice. I was like, okay, all right. Real good. He's like, ah, they should need to, people need to come here and check it out. I think a lot of that's fake news. (laughs) It's like, okay. Okay, guy. Um, So interesting conversations. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, I'd rather be in Dubai than Saudi Arabia. Let's put it that way. At least, at least there's a bar in Dubai. Yeah, there were bars in Dubai. They were very expensive, very pricey beers in Dubai. Oh my gosh! You know, you're looking at like uh, for a beer, maybe twelve or fifteen bucks. Well, let's talk about the race itself a little. Uh, so I, I was keeping up with it, watching it as much as I could, and I get the sense, Fred, that we're going to see a pretty exciting showdown at the Giro between Primoz Roglic and uh, Tom Dumoulin. That it, it, it really looks like it's shaping up that way. Yeah, so Ruglish wins the overall. He won the final stage. Um, I mean, I, I think his victory was very much rooted in uh, Yumbo Visma's team time trial victory because they were faster than everyone. They were also faster than Sunweb. But um, really contrasting styles between Roglic and Dumoulin. I, I went into this thing kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, they're both these time trial climbers who climb at a really measured pace. But um, both on the Jebel Hafit stage, that was the first summit finish. And then also on the second one, Roglic showed himself to have some punch. Like He was a pretty uh, punchy, aggressive rider. On the Jebel Hafit climb, which was pretty steep, he uh, accelerated away from everyone, drew out Dan Martin, drew out um, Manny Bookman. And David yeah. Gaudu, Emmanuel Bookman. Yeah. But um, you know, he really showed some. Um, he really showed some really good accelerations. He couldn't take down Val- Alejandro Valverde, who had a better acceleration. But ah, well. I-, I was impressed with him. And throughout, the- as the week went along, I was pretty impressed with Roglic. Just his ability to withstand the pressure and to stay pretty calm. I mean, he was like signing autographs and taking photos with people. He did not seem like he was worried or under pressure at all. Um, so I- I'm with you, like. Going into the Giro, I originally was like, oh, this is kind of a two-horse race between Dumoulin and Yates. Mm. But I, I'm inclined to throw Roglic in there as another five-star favorite. Yeah, if you consider the time trialing that's required to win that Giro, Yates is not the ideal candidate at that point, but Roglic can definitely time trial. Hoodie, you've been keeping an eye on Roglic, seeing him at the the Tour and some of the other races. What's your take on him? Yeah, I mean, last year you saw Roglic really have a breakout season. He won uh, the Tour of the Basque Country, which is probably the hardest stage race on the calendar. It's that's not a grand tour. He also won the Tour of Romandie, and like like you guys said, he has the climbing chops and the time trial. In fact, many people thought he was going to be the, the Smoky last year and win the Tour de France. Um, you know, he was hovering close. He kind of had that one bad day, and his time trial wasn't as strong as people expected him. Uh, and lost the final podium at the tour last year, but he's really up and coming. I mean, he's he's the guy that I think is poised for a big Grand Tour win. And I agree with you guys. I think it's going to be a, a pretty exciting Giro with Roglic there racing to win. Obviously, Hoodie, did you know that he used to be a ski jumper? Whoa! Really? Wow. Oh man! man. Huge storyline there. We should oh, really we got to cover that one. Yeah! Wow! Big storyline. <laughs> there is a video online, an agony of defeat video online oh. of him crashing, uh, ski jumping. It it's, is ugly. Oh, it looks it very is painful. So gnarly. And I heard from his agent that that actually did play a pretty big role in him eventually moving away from ski jumping because he suffered some pretty bad injuries in it, and uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end for old Primos. Yeah, Fred, going back to the UAE tour, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I've been to some of these Middle Eastern races before, and 
and kind of the tour at under and the South American races, these quote early season races, it seems like the pros still take the racing pretty seriously. You know, the distances aren't as long as kind of a mid-season European stage race. Uh, there's maybe a little bit of a lull in terms of the middle of the race. But what was the racing like there? It seemed like it was pretty intense just watching it from afar. Yeah, people were exhausted after each stage. And I definitely heard some uh, grumblings behind the scenes from, from some people saying, like, we didn't expect it to be this hard. Um, I think a few different things contributed to that. The first is that, you know, it's a world tour race, so victories definitely count. Um, I think the second thing is, is that the fact that they had a team time trial three uphill finishes, two mountaintop t- finishes. You know, it wasn't just a sprinter's race. Like the old Dubai tour was very much a sprinter's race and Abu Dhabi would have one uphill finish, but for the most part, it was sprint stages. So, you know, the teams were built accordingly. But since this race had this really dynamic um, terrain and a team time trial, it attracted a bunch of different types of riders. So people were saying like, ah, man, there's all these like TTT guys here on the flat windy stages who are just like putting us in the gutter and like crushing people and like really riding really hard. And then since there were the uphill finishes, you know, like this, and the profiles were both like flat, flat, flat into climb. Yeah. And so this Jebel hockey sticks. Yeah. Total hockey stick. This Jebel have feet day. Like, you know, they ride around in the sand and the wind all day. They're just, and, and every day was windy and sandy and everyone was finishing with their faces covered in sand and like pulling sand out of their mouths. But you know, this windy, sandy echelon day that then goes right into this steep climb for, you know, 10K. And like people were going so hard at the base of this climb and just, you know, and, and really, you know, up in the pace and people had to climb at a different pace and everyone was just throughout the week, people were talking about how hard it was and kind of in a frustrated way, kind of in a like, man, this kind of sucks. This is really hard. I thought thought it was going to be easier than that. So I think that going forward, if they keep it at this format and keep it in this direction, you know, it's going to be a really painful early wake up call for a lot of people. But again, you know, it is early season. It's not Omloop. It's not uh, Basque Country. You know, it doesn't, it's not going to carry the same level of prestige as as some of those big races for a while. Um, You know, we saw the MGN Tour California originally was in February, and it wasn't until it moved to May that it really started to get a lot of marquee riders who were super fit and really wanted to win it. So I think that'll be an interesting test with uh, the UAE tour going forward. And Spencer, I actually nominate you to go to the race uh, next year. So wow. I'm going to go ahead and oh, put your name down I'm on so honored the, uh, the to media have list. This. Yeah, wow, this is huge. Dude, they have sick water slides everywhere. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was so busy covering the race, uh, I didn't get to go to any water slides. Some of the weird stuff I saw, uh, one of the stages started at their big wild animal park. And like everything out there, the scale of everything is just enormous. You have the tallest building in the world, largest shopping mall, huge soaring Ferrari center, F1 tracks, everything like that. So we started this wild animal park and I was like, dude, this is, this is Jurassic Park. This looks like Jurassic Park. Don like got in there. Dono DNA. <laughs> yeah. So uh, UAE, very impressive place. All right. Uh, guys, before we get out of here, we got a big old race coming up this weekend. Yeah. The Strada Bianca. Very fun race to watch. Rainy last year. Cool white roads. Dynamic mm. racing. Um, maybe we go around and say who's our pick to win this race. Yeah, let's do it. Let's who, do it. Who wants to start us off? Oh, Hoodie is. Hoodie says no, not right. me. I'm going to start us <laughs> off. Okay, all right, we'll do, do it to you. I'm going to start us off. I'm going to say Stebar. Oh, damn it! Yeah, come on, Fred, you took mine. I'm going to say Stebar. Jeez. I was going to say Bob Youngles because I was like, man, Bob Youngles has been crushing people, but I think he's headed to some stage. I think he maybe is doing Torino. Yeah, well, and Perry Nice starts on on yeah, Sunday as yeah. well, so sometimes that plays into it. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. There's a lot of priorities out there, and I know some people. For instance, Peter Sagan, he's skipping Strada Bianca, and Hoodie had a nice story on this. It's uh, he's skipping it because it's it's really hard effort, and uh, he's afraid it might torpedo his chances for the later classics. So that's partly why uh, you don't see Peter Sagan there this year, which is really a bummer, I think. Let's see. I think since you stole my pick, Stenik Stibar, I'll let you do that, though, since you went all the way to the UAE. That's kind of yeoman's work. I, I like, uh, you know what? As much as I bagged on him, 
I like Greg Van Avermet. I think he could be the guy for this. He certainly was climbing very well at Omloop, and if the cards had fallen a different way, who knows? He might have been might have been the guy to win it. I'm going to give you a bonus pick here for the women's race, mm. and I'm going to say Ruth Winder uh. for the women's race. She won a stage at the Valenciana um, women's stage race, which was a few weeks ago. Real panache win. Came back from a flat tire and just chased up to that lead group. I know that she's pretty solid riding on those dirt roads from riding with her around here in Boulder. So I'd like to see Ruth Winder pull out a big win here this this Saturday at uh, Strada Bianca. But we'll see. They still are releasing the start list. Not a whole lot to see just yet on our pro cycling stats. I, I'm thinking also Bulls Dolmans will be, be hard to beat in that race. Yeah, I was going to say Lotto Lapista, but I don't see her name on this list. Uh, yeah, the, the, like I said, they're still confirming the teams. All right, Hoodie, who you got for uh, Strata Bianca? I'm going to go for Julian Alaphilippe. Mm. I think uh, Quickstep mm. will win, but not Steve. I think Alaphilippe, he's been real jumpy out of the gates this year already with some pretty strong performances. I think it's a race that suits him. He is, you know, flesh way own type rider. Maybe maybe this is a little bit too hard for Alaphilippe just in terms of the, you know, he's, he's kind of a lightly built guy. But I think uh, Alaphilippe, if not Valverde, rainbow <laughs> jersey winner. Hey, let's not forget uh, Roman Bardet in the mix last year, and he certainly isn't what you'd consider a big old classics rider by any stretch. Mm, well, I think three good picks. I guess we're just going to have to watch the Four. race. I threw in a bonus, remember? How it yeah. shakes out. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the Vel News podcast on iTunes, Twitter, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Vel News on Facebook at facebook.com slash News Magazine. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash News. Vel News podcast is produced by Vel News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts, opinions expressed on the Vel News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, it's the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Yeah.